thank you again for your welcome. Um, I was just thinking as I was sitting there that I was a little bit vague about my connections with this church. You caught me off guard a little bit there. Um, but uh, I was a babe in arms here over 50 years ago um, because my parents were parishioners and the rector, Alan Begby, was my grandfather. So um, there's a long link with this church. And uh, I feel that it is with more than ordinary pleasure that I can come back after so many years and uh, continue a partnership, I suppose, between, is that better, my family, uh, the college family, and the church family. Uh, my grandfather was a student at college in the 1930s. His father was, uh, lectured at Moore College in 1897. Um, so there's a long history and uh, without your prayers, um, we wouldn't be here. So thank you. Um, let me say, it was, it's a rather confronting Bible reading, uh, and I didn't choose it because I was thinking of you in particular. Uh, in fact, this church looms so large in my personal history. This is where I'm up to. I'm working through Jeremiah this year, so I thought I'd share it with you. Um, but I do know, because I looked at your website, uh, that the vision of St. Stephen's is all about Jesus. It's about reaching people for Jesus, honoring Jesus in everything, bearing witness to him in word and deed. Uh, and this morning, I think I want to reflect with you about what it takes to be a church where Jesus is present. Um, and the great thing about being up to Jeremiah 7 is I don't have to make up my own sermon because uh, I get to use a sermon that the prophet <laughs> Jeremiah preached uh, over two and a half thousand years ago to a congregation that claimed to be God's people but didn't match their actions to their words. So as we uh, turn to look at this passage, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have drawn near to us through your word. And we pray that you would write your word on our hearts by your Holy Spirit, that we may live to the honor of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, if you're not familiar with the book of Jeremiah, it's okay, I won't give you an exhaustive rundown. It is the longest book in the Bible uh, by word count. But the nation of Judah at this point in the story is in the last generation of her four-century-long life. Not that she knows it. Her citizens have come a long way since the idyllic times when God came for them like a lover and rescued them from slavery to become his radiant bride. Uh, the marriage has been shredded by her serial infidelity and going after other gods. And even though... God has never stopped being a loving husband to her. He also brings home the consequences of her actions with frightening clarity. Uh, we've had six chapters in Jeremiah of burning holy anger that should have brought any normal person to their knees, begging for mercy. But some, somehow, for some reason, this people is this congregation of Jeremiah just carries on happily. They're completely secure in their way of life. 
And so beginning in this chapter, Jeremiah delivers a series of sermons and oracles that aim to tear down the pillars of her security. And so he begins with the temple. And he begins, like many preachers do, with a sermon illustration. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. Maybe a, a less of a sermon illustration than a sermon demonstration. You know, if you want to preach about the temple, where better to do it than in the temple? It's like preaching about materialism in a shopping mall or preaching about family around the dinner table. It's got a way of focusing the mind on the topic. Um, Jeremiah loved this sort of symbolism in his preaching. He generally used it to, to subvert and upset and annoy. Uh, so, you know, get ready. Anyway, let's let Jeremiah get underway. Verse 3. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Like many preachers, Jeremiah puts his two main points, not three, he wasn't Anglican, uh, two main points up the front, ready to expand on later. Um, both points, I think, of Jeremiah's sermon are somewhat unexpected. Uh, point number one, reform your ways and your actions. Well, I don't think his listeners felt that their ways and their actions, their lifestyle, really needed much reforming. Um, who are you talking to? They would say, surely not us. Uh, his second point, I will let you live in this place. Well, why say that? Because aren't they already here? You know, we're living here. Well, actually, when Jeremiah says live, the word he used meant something a little bit less permanent. Um, I'll let you maybe reside here, as if God is a landlord and they're the tenants and they've got an eviction notice or warning. Rather ominously, God is suggesting you guys need to change something about your lifestyle or else you're out on your ear. God seems to think the people have a serious problem, but they just simply can't see what it is. So Jeremiah sums up their problem for them in a single famous line, verse 4. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. I think that's how you meant to read it. Because uh, it's like a slogan or a barrack, you know, for Team Judah. And... Um, I don't know, maybe as the people streamed through the gates where Jeremiah was standing on his soapbox, they looked around at the amazing building and they had this chart, you know, the sort of hooray victory chart of being in the temple of the Lord. Well, Jeremiah has a single word to describe that slogan. Uh, he calls it deceptive, which um, basically means it's a lie. Uh, he doesn't just mean misleading. He means that the leaders of the people have been telling them lies about God. So uh, what is it about this Team Judah slogan that counts as a lie? I mean, obviously, it is the temple. Um, the temple of the Lord? Well, I suppose so. You need to go back to verse 3 to see the lie. What Jeremiah, I think, is saying is that this lie... This thing they say about God has become a lie because of everything that's wrong about their lifestyle, their ways, and their actions. Um, don't call it the temple of the Lord. It's not true. Now, some people get a little bit confused about verse 4. They think it's um, 
I guess, saying, okay, here we are in a church, is uh, like the temple, is this the church of the Lord? Does God hang out in a, in a building? Um, and we know that's right. You know, we don't value the building as the church. The church is the people. Wherever we are, God is present when we gather in his name. Now, now that's true, but I don't think it's exactly what verse 4 is saying. You have to read it with verse 3. And Jeremiah is saying, if your ways and your actions are wrong, then you are lying when you call the temple the temple of the Lord. Right? This is a sermon about how their behavior affects their beliefs. So that's why Jeremiah's first main sermon point is about what it does it mean to reform your ways and your actions. And he spells out point one in verse five. Now just look at verse five and six. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm. Jeremiah in verse 5 uses a, a double emphasis. It's if you truly change your ways, if you truly act with justice towards your neighbor. You know, he's not interested in superficial gestures in the direction of justice. He wants real substantive action to restore and maintain good order and right relationships between the citizens of God's society. And in case um, they were like the rich young ruler who, you know, carefully wanted to know who his neighbor was so he didn't waste time on somebody who wasn't his neighbor, uh, verse 6 makes it pretty clear, doesn't it? It gives us the three classic vulnerable groups in Israelite society. Your neighbor in this scenario is someone over whom you have power. And oppression means exploiting that. Now, uh, um, I'd be the first to agree that these verses make a great blueprint for any society. I would love, I long for Australia to look like this. But Jeremiah is not actually applying this text to the world. He's applying it to the church of his day. Each year at Moore College, God sends us wonderful and godly men and women to train for ministry. And they will become the next generation of God's, the church's, powerful people. They are intelligent, they're highly educated, they're mobile, they're employable, they're articulate, and many of them will find their powers multiplied tenfold by being appointed to positions of leadership in the church. Many of you here are also leaders in one way or another in God's church, and you may measure your value by the things that other powerful people and leaders and people you admire say about you. God, on the other hand, gets his report on you from the weak, from the children, the unemployed, the mentally ill, the elderly, the illiterate, the homeless among God's people. So please pray for our students Pray for your leaders that they may value the vulnerable and not seek to please the powerful. See how Jeremiah talks about the abuse of power in verse 6? He talks about it in terms of pouring out the blood of the innocent 
in this place. Making, he makes it sound like a temple sacrifice, you know, as if oppression is a type of perverted sacrifice. What he means, I think, is that the powerful get their power at the expense of the weak. Right? They sacrifice the weak on the altar of their own advancement. Exploiting vulnerable people is how powerful people gain their power. And it's a very dangerously attractive thing, I think, for we leaders in the church. Uh, often it takes a spiritual form, and when a leader tries to carve out a personal following, or we mentor and make disciples for ourselves and polarize people so that I'm the only one that you can trust and build little empires for ourselves. Um, but exploitation can get dreadfully physical as well. Uh, bullying, sexual abuse, domestic violence, as we've been thinking about in the news over the last couple of weeks. Um, be careful if you find yourself in a position of power. Pray for your leaders that they may value the vulnerable and not please the powerful. The end result for Jeremiah's listeners of that sort of lifestyle could not be more confronting. The end of verse 6, if you do not follow other gods to your own harm. You know, that meant literal pagan sacrifice for Jeremiah's listeners, but idolatry is attached to the end of this description because it's an accurate summary of this sort of lifestyle. We're talking about lives devoted to getting rather than giving, to self-gratification rather than service. And those sorts of lives are lives given over to the power of the demonic, lives rushing headlong into the jaws of death. Well, that was Jeremiah's first point. He doesn't need three. He moves on to his second follow-on point in verse 7. Then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. Now, um, I don't know if you hear this, but I reckon this must have really annoyed his listeners. Right? First he repeats this dodgy statement about how they're in danger of being evicted, and then he makes exactly the point his listeners were thinking of as the reason why he was wrong in the first place. You know, we are not temporary tenants because God promised us that we would be here forever. He promised us permanent residence forever and ever. How can you, Jeremiah, how can you agree about this and maintain that we're still in danger of being evicted? You know, Jeremiah's congregation had priests, had theologians. They knew what God was like. They knew that God is a promise maker. God is a promise keeper, a redeemer, a rock of salvation. They knew that if the Lord is there, there must be salvation and rescue, even for a nation of slaves, of sinners, a people of no account. If Jeremiah's congregation was sitting here in the building with us today. They would be singing of the costly grace of God by which we who are dead in our transgressions and sins may draw near with confidence to the throne of grace and receive mercy. The question is, when do those songs become empty words? When does a church's vision statement become a meaningless team slogan? Verse 8, look, you are trusting 
and deceptive words that are worthless. Why is the Team Judah slogan completely useless? You know, slogans, of course, in general are useless. You know, just repeating something doesn't make it true. The burgers are better, the burgers are better, the burgers are better at Hungry Jack's. You know, if only it were so. Um, But I don't think that's Jeremiah's point here. His point is that these people have actively invalidated this truth by their lifestyle. Their lifestyle has turned it into a lie. Verse 9, I'll give you a slightly different translation of this verse because it's quite impersonal in a way. It's like there's an atmosphere of transgression. Uh, Is there stealing and murdering and adultery and false witness and burning incense to Baal and walking other gods you have not known? You know, is there all of this stuff around and then you come and you stand before me in this house which is called by my name and you say, we are saved in order that you may carry out all these abominations. Jeremiah has taken us back to this problem of an evil lifestyle, but uh, he's moved on here from his description in verse 5. Did you notice he quoted the Ten Commandments, or the second half of them? Rather than focusing on how exploiting the vulnerable destroys the church, he wants, to see the deeper tr- he wants us to see the deeper truth here. A sin ag- to sin against neighbor is to rebel against God. The God who made a promise redeemed them at a price. He called them into relationship with himself. He made them his treasured possession. And they were to remain that way by keeping his commands. They were saved to walk with him for a purpose. You see how Jeremiah twists that purpose around at the end. You say we are saved with what purpose? So that you can carry out all these abominations. You know, these are not sins of ignorance he's talking about. These are, they're not even crimes of passion that you commit in haste and repent in leisure. These are calculated, cynical life choices that are made because you know jolly well that if God is going to be God, he's got no choice, he's going to have to forgive you. You know what I think is missing from the Team Judah chart? Fear. What do you believe? Do you believe that Christ forgives you so that you can live for him? Or that Christ forgives you so that you can live for yourself? And I don't want to hear what you have to say because your answer to that question is not told by what you say. It's told by how you live. Jeremiah finishes, at least as far as we'll get through together this morning, by turning their vision of the temple upside down. Verse 11. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. We all know that line because Jesus uses it, doesn't he, when he cleanses the temple after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's a very vivid image. Um, The robbers he's talking about are are violent bandits, murderers. You know, he's saying the temple has become basically a place where murderous thugs can shelter from justice. 
You know, think about it. Is there any way in which a temple like that could justifiably be called the temple of the Lord? Jeremiah's listeners were annoyed by this contradiction in saying that God is going to evict them from a land that he said they can stay in forever. Well, Jeremiah, he's got a sort of Paul Hogan's knife. He says, you call that a contradiction? This is a contradiction. You call it the temple of the Lord, but you stripped it and gutted it so that you could stash your loot and hide from the Lord's wrath. You knew he'd be angry. Of course you knew he'd be angry. But you thought there was one place he could never get you. Well, here's the thing. I have been watching. God is present in his temple, just as you say. But how you will wish he had not been. His presence will be one of judgment and wrath. Well, that's Jeremiah's sermon. I want to finish by reflecting briefly on how Christ's people might hear that sermon. And I want to think just quite briefly about, I think it has something to say to us about Christ's absence and also about Christ's presence. Now, the temple was the way God made himself present among his Old Testament people. And that's why, of course, Jesus compared himself to the temple. Where Christ is, we gather in his name as church and God is present among us through his word. But because that presence is an invisible presence. We need to preserve and protect it with tremendous care. Now, it's unbearably tragic, and I've seen this, to see a group of people that names Christ to themselves, that may even have paid a price for their allegiance to that name, but who in actual fact are congregating around a void feeding off thin air because the lives they live of self-worship have turned their naming of Christ into a lie. Jeremiah forces us to recognize that our lifestyle has the power to turn every true thing we say about God into a lie. To create congregations in which the word of God may be read and prayed and sung but from which Christ, the word of God, is absent. However, thanks be to God. Praise the Lord. He delivers us from our slavery to sin through Jesus Christ. There's no condemnation in him. Jesus, as God's living temple, the word of God flows across the earth to not only judge but to save. Remember how Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Uh, the first thing he did, he came to his temple to cleanse it of idols. And you know what he filled it with? He preached in it. He filled it with the pure teaching of the word of God, the thing that had gone. Remember how Jesus, when his blood was poured out as a sacrifice on the cross, he tore through the veil and exposed the wide earth to the presence of holy God. Jeremiah's listeners heard the word of God read by the priests from the book of the law, but they remained deaf to it. 
However, today, every time we prayerfully hear scripture read and taught, every time we do that, Jesus makes God present to us by his spirit with an immediacy of a burning bush or a fiery mountain. Let's make sure, shall we, that we continue to find life through that word, to find safe shelter in that temple. Let's pray. Have mercy on us, our great God and Heavenly Father. Protect us from emptying our gospel of its truth by the way that we live. Help us to value the weak as you value the weak, to live for your honour rather than for our own comfort. And in all things, may the word of Christ fill us richly that we may honour him in our lives and draw many to him through word and deed that your name may be hallowed and your kingdom come. For Jesus' sake. Amen.